That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining our podcast. I want to tell you about something really new and exciting called Patreon.com slash BP Show. It's a great way to get uh, exclusive interviews with newsmakers, voicemails, personalized videos, political commentary, and early access to a special podcast called The Making of Bernie Sanders. Go to patreon.com slash BP show. Patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Call him Jefferson Stonewall Sessions. Uh, yeah, he refused to answer those questions yesterday. Hello, everybody. Wednesday, Wednesday, 2017. Flag Day. Yes, we're going to celebrate Flag Day around here, the Bill Press Show. We are not <laughs> celebrating Donald Trump's birthday. It's just. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Is today yeah, his birthday? It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's a That's sad a day. Bummer. Sad day. Yes. It's a pretty good mood. But it's a beautiful sunny day in Washington D.C. with a again a great big dark cloud hanging over the White House, and that cloud looks an awful lot like Russia when you look to it. Even more so today after uh, Jefferson Stonewall Sessions. Just just a shifty, shifty, slimy, slippery uh, appearance before the Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday. Oh, man, we got lots to talk about. We'll dig into that, what it all means, all the takeaways from uh, Jefferson Sessions, uh, Jeff Sessions' testimony yesterday. Plus, what does it mean that we found out that neither Donald Trump nor uh, Attorney General Sessions, back when they heard about all this Russian attempt to hack into our election and undermine the, an American election, they didn't give a damn. They didn't have one briefing about it, didn't ask one question about the whole thing. Let's hear from you. Send us your comments on Twitter, at BP Show. Love hearing from you. We'll dive right into the big news of the day with you. But first, this is the Full Court Press. Just a couple of other stories making news. Bill, when you go to the beach, do you get a tan? Are you a tanner guy? Do you you naturally take on a tan? I do. All right. Well, not everybody can. And so now there is a new... I usually get a little burn first, but I mean, I do... We, I call, tan. That a, we call that a base tan. Oh, is that it? Yeah, okay. it's not a burn, yeah, it's a yeah, base right, tan. Right, but... <laughs> well, scientists have developed a drug that mimics sunlight to make the skin tan without the damaging UV radiation. Isn't that wild? So if you want to get it, because that's the it's problem... It's been around for a long time. It's called makeup. No, no, no. The, the, this is a pill you take, and this is the way that... The way that it works is it kicks off a chain of chemical reaction in the skin that ultimately leads 
to dark melanin, the natural sunblock, being made. So one of the other problems is some people don't tan, right? Like they're very How about tanning boxes or the salon, salons? Well, that's well. bad because it's ultraviolet rays. Oh, okay. And this uses no ultraviolet rays. That's the stuff that can give you skin cancer. So what's cancer. the point? The point here is if you want to be tan and you want to... Take a pill. Take, you could take a pill and not harm yourself. And also there are a lot of people who are naturally very fair-skinned yeah. who just get burned. Right, yeah. If you take this pill, you don't get burned. <laughs> You get a tan. But you can have a tan. Still no cure for cancer, but, buddy, you can look good in the summer without getting... Well, the nicest thing about this is you don't have to go to Florida. <laughs> that's, that's probably the best Any excuse point. for not going that's to Florida. Actually, the best it's a good one. point. Right. Uh, you remember Pete Souza, the uh-huh. former White yeah. House photographer. Not only was he the White House photographer for Barack Obama... Good guy. Neat, a good guy. Like, yeah. And who's, who's also having a moment right now because he's putting out photos that absolutely troll Donald Trump, right? Like if Donald Trump... Caption game strong. A very strong caption game. If Donald Trump does something terrible for the environment, he'll put out a photo of, say, Barack Obama doing something wonderful for the environment, right? Well, he has a new book coming out. It's called Obama, An Intimate Portrait. It will contain about 300 photos of Barack Obama's time in office. And Barack Obama announced that he will write the foreword to the book. Oh, good for him. Get yeah, that money, him. Pete. Yeah, get that, that money. Pete's got to get know. paid. Pete yeah. needs to get yeah. paid. Yeah. Pete's a very talented guy. And by the way, I was oh, going to no. say, he, he's an incredible. Was... He's a really nice guy, too, because I used to see him all the time around the White House. And and on the trips that I took with Obama, you know, he was always, he, his presence, he was always there, but like he wasn't there. You right. know? No, he's incredible. There when you need him, yeah. gone when you don't. He's always right there, but he, you never, never got in the way. You know, he just. He was the photographer for Ronald Reagan, too, don't forget. He, he really? Yeah, he was a photographer for Ronald Reagan, and then Barack Obama brought him back. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. yeah. But, well, we have to try to get him in. Yeah, so Show some pictures, talk about that book. Yeah, I'd love to do that. On your radio, on TV. And online, this is The Bill Press Show. How dare you? How dare you question my patriotism? Mm-hmm. Yep, there he was. Attorney General of the United States yesterday. After all, he says, I'm from Alabama. I never do anything wrong. You can trust me. I'm from Alabama. Yeah. What a performance yesterday by the Attorney General of the United States, lying his way through about three hours of testimony in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He didn't remember a damn thing, conveniently, but not believably. What do you say, folks? Good to see you today. It is Wednesday, June 14, Flag Day. Yep, salute the flag. Don't salute the President of the United States, even though it happens to be his 71st birthday. We will bring you all the news of the day and the update on yesterday's hearing as we join you from our studio on Capitol Hill here in Washington, D.C., and uh, looking out to you, looking out uh, at you on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show on Free Speech TV. Joining you all over Chicago area on WCPT. Uh, good to have you with us. And don't forget, you got some extra opportunities. Uh, always check out our podcast. More and more people do. That's a way. I mean, you know, radio today is all about the podcast, just about, or, you know, so many people. More and more po- podcasts popping up. Ours have been around for a while. You go to iTunes or BillPressShow.com and uh, join us on um, on the podcast, either 
for the whole show or any part of the show you want to watch later. Uh, and on Patreon.com, very special content and stuff that we're able to put up uh, that you'll get nowhere else by just subscribing to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Uh, indeed. Jeff Sessions yesterday, the big takeaways from that hearing, he came in there loaded for bear. He was going to shoot down any idea that he had ever, ever done anything wrong. And he started out by talking about any suggestion that I did anything inappropriate, detestable lie. And the suggestion that I participated in any collusion that I was aware of any collusion with the Russian government to hurt this country, which I have served with honor for 35 oh, years, oh, my God. or to undermine the integrity of our democratic process, is an appalling and detestable lie. Oh, a detestable lie. Oh, yeah, appalling and detestable lie. How dare you question my integrity? Uh, come on. I mean, yeah. Why don't you answer the questions if you want to be believed? Uh, yes. And uh, this idea that um, that there were reasons why he really had to recuse himself, as suggested by Director Comey last week, without attacking James Comey, uh, he again shows his outrage at that suggestion here by Senator Ron Wyden. There are none. I can tell you that for absolute certainty. We can. We, you tell. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me, and I don't appreciate it. <laughs> I don't appreciate it. I want you to know. Oh, yeah, man. right. So, uh, so let's just go through uh, what what, uh, and we'll hear more from Sessions here. What Sessions was saying yesterday. So, first of all, uh, my takeaway is he starts out because one of the big reasons they called him in is that uh, James Comey suggested last week uh, and told the senators in the private session, not in the public session, that there was an April 27 meeting last year where candidate Trump comes to the Mayflower Hotel to give a big foreign policy speech. Jeff Sessions, as a big supporter of uh, Donald Trump's, was there. Uh, and Comey said there's, this was meeting number three, or encounter number three, with Ambassador Kislyak. Jeff Sessions said about that meeting yesterday, he had, he started out with that by saying he did not recall. He says he had no idea whether Kislyak was there or not. If any brief interaction occurred in passing with the Russian ambassador during that reception, I do not remember it. Did not. So he left, he, he was all over the place on that point. Um, but what he, what he wants us to believe is that before the speech, and they go out in the room, the ballroom where there are hundreds of people there, there's a little reception for about two dozen people. He is there with one of his aides. The press, the candidate comes in and goes around and shakes hands. And we know now that Kislyak was there. We're talking, this is Washington, D.C. We're talking a United States Senator a president candidate, presidential candidate, two dozen people, and the Russian ambassador comes in. Now, you've seen pictures of the Russian ambassador. He's as big as a house. He's a big presence. He's he's he fills a room literally. He's like a Donald <laughs> Trump guy, and that big Russian bear walks in 
and everybody in Washington knows him. And Sessions wants us to believe that he doesn't remember whether Kisiak was there, whether or not he shook his hand, whether or not he talked to him. He remembers nothing. And he said, but if it did happen, it, they didn't talk about anything of substance. I find that on the surface of it just totally, totally unbelievable. Now, Bill, how could you how could you possibly not believe such a uh, a clear cut story such as that to insinuate that I would oh, be yeah. making oh, something yeah. up like yeah. that is mm-hmm. a detestable lie. <laughs> yes, 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 Stonewall. <laughs> uh, so then, um, so that's one take. I just don't believe that uh, that May May twenty seventh. It may not have been. I'm not saying he was there colluding with the Russians at that point, but I'm just saying he would if he he would he he would know if Kisiak were there, and he would definitely have shaken his hands. The other thing is, and this is really what got um, uh, Sessions in trouble yesterday, is he refused to answer very important question. So let's go back to the firing of James Comey. Originally, the White House said. We fired Comey because Jeff Sessions and Rod Rosenstein asked us to. And they wrote a memo about all this terrible stuff that Comey had had done the way he treated Hillary Clinton. And based on that, we fired her. Him. The next day, Donald Trump met with, oh, by the way, Kislyak again in the Oval Office with the Russian foreign minister and says to him, to them, boy, I got rid of that nut job yesterday. Comey, boy, I feel a lot better today because I got all that pressure off my back. I got rid of that nut job, Comey, and I fired him because of that Russian investigation, and now that's behind us. So Trump admits that that's not why he fired Trump, fired, that, that the memo is not why Trump fired uh, Comey. So the question yesterday asked by Senator Feinstein uh, and starting with her and then with all, several others was, okay, what did you talk to? What did Donald Trump tell you about why he fired um, Comey? Did you talk to him before this memo? Did he ask you to write that memo as sort of a fig leaf for firing Comey? And on that, Sessions wouldn't answer, uh, and the senators really went after him as uh, Angus King and Martin Heinrich and um, and Ron Wyden and others pointed out that Sessions wouldn't answer it. So they said. Are you invoking executive privilege? No. Only the president can invoke executive privilege. Okay. So then has the president invoked executive privilege on this case? No, the president has not. Okay. Follow the logic here, right? (laughs) So if only the president can do it and the president has not done it, then why do you refuse to answer the question? Did you or did you not, not, yes or no, Talk to Donald Trump, discuss the reasons why he wanted to fire James Comey. And what did the president tell you? Uh, Jeff Sessions refused to answer. He said he was following longstanding policy. You would not, you would not, that you would not discuss uh, any conversation that you had with the president of the United States. That was stonewalling. That was stonewalling. And that was what um, Rod and Wyden went after him. And Jeff Sessions fires back, "Uh uh-uh, that's not what I'm doing. Senator Wyden, I uh, am not stonewalling. I am following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. Uh, Yes, indeed. Come on, man. Right. 
And Martin Heinrich says, yeah, what you're doing right now is you are obstructing an investigation by this committee. You are obstructing that congressional delegation uh, investigation by not answering these questions. And I think your silence, like the silence of Director Coates, like the silence of Admiral Rogers, speaks volumes. Yeah, absolutely. I know. I thought his refusal to answer that question. And again, a simple yes or no. Did you talk to the president about firing Comey before you and Rosenstein wrote that phony memo? We know now that's a phony memo. It's a fake memo. That's not why James Comey was was fired. Comey knows it. Trump knows it. The world knows it because Trump told the Russians that in the Oval Office. Sessions would not even without without revealing the content of the conversation. He would not even answer the question. Did you or did you not talk to the president about that? Uh, I think pretty clearly that shows that he did. Yeah. And it shows he knew exactly what was going on. And Trump told him, I got to get rid of this son of a bitch and give me a reason for it. And Comey, uh, Sessions goes back, gets together with Rosenstein, who, by the way, I know he appointed James Mueller, Robert Mueller, rather, as a special counsel. So everybody gives him credit for that. But I think Rosenstein's name has been disgraced. He's being used as a stooge by the Trump White House. And if he had any self-respect, he would resign rather than let them continue to use him as a reason Comey's uh, out of a job today. So uh, third takeaway is let's go back to this February 14 meeting in the Oval Office. Remember, we talked about this where Comey said they're there. They're all there lined up at this little briefing. The briefing is over. They all sort of get up to go. And and, and Trump says, no, I want you to stay to Comey uh, and Sessions lingers around, and so does Jared Kushner. And then Trump says to Sessions, no, I want you out of here. And he says to Kushner, no, I want you out of here. I just want to be alone with that. Uh, and, and, and I thought it was, again, unbelievable that Sessions yesterday didn't find anything wrong with that. He said he didn't think it was a major problem. Yeah. He, he remembers he did stay like he was one of the la- He said he was one of the last to leave. That's all he remembers. Look, he's the attorney general of the United States. He's the boss of the FBI director, and the president wants to talk to him and throws the boss out of the room, and, and, and Sessions doesn't find anything strange about that. Um, I don't believe that either. Yeah. He, he had to know there was something up. In fact, I would say he probably knew exactly what Trump was going to do, and he supported it. Um, then another takeaway is this was really strange. Over and above all of this, we have found out more now about what the Russians were up to. But even at that time, we didn't know to what extent, as we've learned this week, that they were trying to interfere in the state elections process as well. There are over two, over two dozen states the Russians tried to hack into their vote counting systems. So back then, all we knew is that they were 17 intelligence agencies told us they were hacking DNC, hacking the RNC. They were attempting to interfere with the 2016 presidential election in order to help Donald Trump get elected. A foreign adversary, again, interfering and trying to undermine our democracy. They knew this. And Jeff Sessions, it came out yesterday that neither Jeff Sessions nor Donald Trump ever asked for any information about that, never asked 
for a briefing, never asked to find out exactly what was going on, never expressed any concern. This is terrible. This should never be allowed to happen again. Um, Angus King got into this with him yesterday, just saying, you know, why wasn't this enough that you would try to seek more information? You never sought any information about this uh, rather dramatic attack on our country? Uh, no. You never, was... you never asked for a briefing or attended a briefing or uh, read well, the intelligence reports? You might have been very critical of me if I, as an active part of the campaign, was seeking intelligence. Whoa, 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 what does that say? No, he was head of the National Security Policy Committee in the campaign. He Jeff Sessions, Senator Jeff Sessions. And he hears that a foreign adversary is trying to throw our election. And he says, he, he, he not only did he have no interest and seek no information, but we would have been critical of him if he had done so. No, I think we're critical of him because he didn't, didn't even ask a question, nor did Donald Trump. Again, Angus King follows up. You didn't want any information on this? You received no briefing on the Russian active measures in connection with the 2016 election? No. I don't believe I ever did. That's stunning. Wow. That is really stunning. Yeah. Uh, that, that, that you would hear about this. It's just unheard of before that anybody would try to, to, to you know, interfere with our election. And the fact that Russia, we know, 17 intelligence agencies tell us Russia did it and why they did it. And Jeff Sessions doesn't doesn't care enough. He said all he knows about is what he read in the paper. Doesn't care enough to find out about it. Yeah. The attorney general. The attorney. Well, he was not yet attorney general. Right, but, but coming in. Yes. But he was the head of Donald Trump's National Security Committee. Something you should campaign. care about. Uh, hello. Yeah. And he's also a member of the Senate, I believe, of the Senate Intelligence Committee, at least Senate Judiciary Committee, for sure. Um, so I thought it was very damning uh, testimony yesterday. Yeah, he protected his boss. He protected Donald Trump. I'm sure Donald Trump's happy with him because he stonewalled the committee. But, you know, this is not going to be um, not going to be the end of this. Uh, Mark Warner made that uh, ranking Democrat, made that very clear yesterday. He said, uh, Senator, it's nice of you to come in on very short notice. Member Sessions is the one who said, I want to come in on Tuesday. I want to do it in public because he wanted to get out there and refute, try to refute Comey's testimony last week. But Mark Warner pointed out that, Senator, uh, this is only the beginning. We're going to need you to come back. We hope you'll continue to cooperate with the committee. Uh, and Adam Schiff, the ranking Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee yesterday, made it very, very clear that if Sessions, when and if Sessions testifies in front of the House Intelligence Committee, uh, they're not going to let him stonewall. You're either going to have to fish or cut bait. You're going to have to claim executive privilege or you're going to have to testify. Uh, and we have the means to compel that. And uh, if it's not done willingly, I think we should compel that. Yep, that's right. In other words, no, 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 Senator. Listen carefully. Listen carefully. You could be held... Uh, and several people suggested this yesterday, that he could be held in contempt of Congress for refusing to answer the questions. And these are simple yes or no questions, right? No, not to violate any confidential privilege of... Conf of and by the way, uh, it was pointed out yesterday, rightfully so, that other presidents have invoked executive privilege. Uh, Barack Obama did so 
when uh, uh, some members of Congress wanted to ask Eric Holder what he had he and the president had discussed. So the the contents of that conversation you might protect, but the fact that he did talk to Donald Trump about firing James Comey before writing a memo. Did that conversation just take place? Yes or no? Jeff Sessions has to answer that. Um, Big day in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday. And by the way, I think that committee overall, of course, the Republicans, all they do is, you know, try to defend Donald Trump. You expect that. But overall, I think that committee is doing a damn good job. Um, they're, they're, They're active. They're probing. They're asking tough questions. They are asking the right questions. That, that, that was one of yeah. my biggest takeaways is they didn't just – I mean, a lot of times you, these things are for show, right? Yeah, you, yeah, you know yeah, that. Right. No, this and was, I don't think this uh, is that one of those situations. There's some good stuff yesterday. It, w- it was interesting, not to be too critical. There, you know, you, you think about, boy, if I were there, this is what I would ask, right? Uh, it was interesting to me that nobody asked him directly, did you threaten to resign? Is it true that you, thre- that, oh, man. That you uh, told the president you'd resign? And and why? Yeah. He, he could not have invoked executive privilege. Well, maybe he would have tried, but I I'd like to hear him. I'd like to see him squirm on that one, right? Uh, also, nobody nobody asked him directly. So, do you think James Comey's a nut job? <laughs> <laughs> I think that is a detestable lie. <laughs> uh, that would have been that would have been kind of. Fun to find, fun to find out. That would have been a fun question. Yeah. Meanwhile, all right, we'll talk. And detestable <laughs> lie. Oh yes, indeed. Yeah. Uh, we will uh, uh, be talking more about uh, Jeff Sessions. And again, your comments and you, you watched it. What did you think uh, at BP Show? So big uh, gubernatorial primary in Virginia last night with some very interesting results. First of all, on the Republican side, Ed Gillespie who ran for Senate against Mark Warner and almost beat Mark Warner. came very, very close uh, a couple of years ago. So he's running for governor. Everybody said in the primary, this is going to be just um, a done deal for Ed Gillespie. No problem at all. Well, he almost, he came in with less than one percentage point. Uh, what was it, about 5,000 votes or something like that? It was, it he was won by very, very close. Razor thin margin. Uh, which shows the Republican Party over there is really is really screwed up. I think you can start referring to him as Jeb Gillespie. Maybe. Because yeah. he is very Jeb Bush-esque oh, in the is. sense that there. he came in as a juggernaut. Everyone just assumed yeah. he was right. going to be the yeah. guy. Good idea, yeah. And he just couldn't – I mean, this was so close, so close against a guy who has tied himself to Trump more than probably any other candidate Oh yeah, and that's in going, the nation. And that's going to be his problem uh, in the fall. Uh, and on the Democratic side, Ralph Northam, the lieutenant governor, uh, handily, handily by 12 points, beat back a very, a ver- very, very strong challenge by a great guy, Tom Perriello. Our friend's been on the show many, many times. Bernie Sanders supported Tom Perriello. They were, I have to say, Tom Perriello, if you want, is a more of a progressive than Ralph Northam. But Ralph Northam's a, a great progressive as well. Northam did have the support of the entire establishment. Um, Governor McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe, and uh, Mark Warner, and Tim Kaine as well. Uh, last night, he picked up a theme of uh, Barack Obama. Are you fired up? Are you ready to go? Are you ready to win in November? 
Yep, yep, indeed. Are you ready to win in November? Sessions-esque uh, there. Yeah, sessions. You ready to win in November? <laughs> <laughs> and what about uh, Terry McAuliffe? Uh, is the, the, continuing the legacy of Terry McAuliffe. People ask me, said, Ralph, are you going to continue doing what Governor McAuliffe's been doing? I said, damn right I am. We're proud. <laughs> uh, so that's going to be a, a great big challenge in Virginia. Uh, I uh, talked to a couple of... Uh, uh, Republican friends from Virginia the other day uh, had at lunch who said they are uh, they're convinced they Republican friends of Virginia they're convinced that uh, uh, Virginia is going to stay blue with uh, Ralph Northam. Here's something that should scare the hell out of any Republican uh, in Virginia. Uh, last night, as of 99 percent of the precincts that came in on the Democratic side, turnout was up. 170% for Democrats. Wow. From the last primary. 170%. Wow. That's crazy. That is significant. That's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there we go. The lineup it is going to be uh, Ralph Northam versus Ed Gillespie in uh, Virginia. Uh, Ralph and Ed Gillespie with. Uh, a big anchor by the name of Donald Trump around his neck. He's not going to be able to shake him, can't escape him. Uh, I doubt that he'll invite Donald Trump into campaign with him, but still he will be, uh, uh, just as a Republican, he is Donald Trump. It, I think this primary, or this general election in Virginia, is going to be a man, uh, kind of a, a referendum, a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah. And with Donald Trump now at 36% approval rating, uh, if I were Ed Gillespie, I wouldn't. I'd get as far away from him as I can. And it really should show how screwed up the Republican Party is, too. I know that Democrats have their own problems after the last election. But when you look at a guy like Ed Gillespie, who nearly lost to a complete maniac like Corey Stewart. Yeah, yeah, who who is. And he is a total maniac. And that race was so close. It shows that the Republican Party has more problems than the Democrats. Realistically, yeah. if you look at the big yeah. picture and you look at what they're really up against, yep. they got real problems. Yeah. Uh, before we take a break, I just have to, uh, I, you know, <laughs> we talked about we didn't just get Donald Trump. We got the whole damn family. So uh, I, I can't. Re- I got. I got. I got to just get a word in about this comment that uh, Ivanka made. I believe it was on Fox and Friends, um, one of the shows the other morning, where. She's talking about, oh, how bad everybody is treating us. It is hard, and there's a level of viciousness that I was not expecting. I was not expecting the intensity of this experience. Well, I just wanted to say that uh, for once, I really think Ivanka spoke the truth, that uh, we have seen a level of viciousness uh, out of the White House this year that we have never experienced in American politics, at least in our lifetime. Sure. We have a president of the United States talking about viciousness who called James Comey a liar, a coward, a criminal leaker, a dishonest man, a bad character, and a nut job. Yes, Ivanka, you're right. We've seen a level of viciousness we never expected before. Ah, happy birthday, Donald Trump. <laughs> I got to tell you, folks. <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon, one of the best books I have ever read. It's an incredible story. Uh, David Grant 
the author, is going to join us to tell us all about um, You Will Not Believe, the story about the Osage Indian tribe out in Oklahoma. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. Even their uh, new motto, resist, and I guess it's a pretty accurate motto. Every time I see it, I say, that's right. That does represent the Democrats. Get social with Bill Press. Like us at Facebook.com slash Bill Press Show. This is the Bill Press Show. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here we go now on a Wednesday, Wednesday, June 14. Uh, great to see you, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us. Coming to you live coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill in uh, Washington, D.C. Um, we are brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees. Yes, the good men and women of the AFGE under President J. David Cox. They're the people who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out. Uh, we value their service and thank them for their support of the uh, program. You can check out their website at afge.org. If you check the uh, New York Times bestseller list, right about five or six the last time I looked, uh, rightfully so, Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. Uh, David Grant, who's uh, the author of this book and a staff writer for The New Yorker, uh, joins us in studio. Hi, David. Good to see you. Thank you for having the program. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, I don't. I didn't know anything about this story, although I, I had read a little in The New Yorker. There was an yes. expert, excerpt. I'm going to get that microphone a little closer to you. Um, but... So who are the Osage Indians, first of all, and how did this story start? So uh, the Osage Indians uh, once controlled much of the central part of the country, uh, all the way from Kansas to the edge of the Rockies. Um, in 1803, not to go too far back, but yeah. Thomas Jefferson referred to them as the great nation. Uh, but then they were gradually forced off their land. They were then bunched up into a reservation in Kansas and were under siege once more. Um, and it was then that an Osage chief stood up and he said, we should move to what was then Indian Territory, would later become Oklahoma, because the land was infertile and it was rocky and worthless. And so the Osage bought this land, this seemingly forsaken land. They migrated there. Um, and then lo and behold, this seemingly forsaken land turned out to be sitting upon some of the largest deposits of oil then in the country. And so in the early 20th century, uh, the Osage became the wealthiest people per capita in the world. In the world. In yeah. the world. Right. So here are these Native Americans who, who just go to dirt, poor, rocky air, land just to – because basically that's all they could afford and – right? And, and everybody was glad to get rid of them. And then they end up sitting on this gold mine. Yeah, they thought they went there thinking uh, the white man would finally leave them alone. <laughs> yeah. um, and then all this oil was there. And um, they uh, lived in terracotta mansions. Um, they uh, belied longstanding racial stereotypes. And so reporters would travel out to Osage territory and describe the quote-unquote red millionaires and the quote-unquote plutocratic Osage. It was said at the time, whereas one American might own a car, each Osage owned 11 of them. <laughs> Really, man. And, yeah, and yeah. and just in the year 1923, there are only about 2,000 or so Osage. Um, they receive what would be worth today more than 400 million dollars. Whoa, whoa! 
So I was going to ask you how big the tribe was. It's, it's about 2,000? Yeah, there was about 2,000. And then, of course, as the book focuses on, um, they then began to be systematically targeted one by one uh, for their oil money. Right. That's the point. So so suddenly they start dying off or getting killed off, right? Yeah. And and was this a – I mean, how many and was this a targeted operation led by any one person or – yeah, so what did you I, find out? Yeah, so I write a lot about uh, one woman named uh, Molly Burkhart, a kind of remarkable woman. Um, in 1921, um, she's Osage. Her older sister uh, disappears. Uh, she looks everywhere for her. And a week later, her sister is found in a ravine shot in the back of the head. A few days later, her mom grows mysteriously sick and within two months uh, stops breathing. And evidence would suggest that she had been poisoned. She had another sister, a younger sister named Rita, who lived nearby. One night at 3 in the morning, Molly wakes up. She goes to the window. She looks outside, and in the direction of her sister's house, she can see this large orange ball rising into the sky. Somebody planted a bomb under her sister's house, killing her sister, her sister's husband, a white maid who lived in the house. And that was just Molly's family. Other Osage were being targeted one by one. She was married. She was married to a white settler. In fact, several of the uh, – what was it that white settlers tried to marry the Indian women to get a piece of the money? Is that- yeah. So the, the, the thing that made these crimes so sinister was the only way to steal the Osage money um, – Osage had what was called a head right, which is essentially a share in the mineral trust. And a head right could not be bought or sold. It could only be inherited. And so what this led to were these incredibly dark – um, murderous schemes in which whites would marry into the families while pretending to love you, all the while systematically plotting to kill you. Right. And and uh, that was the case for Molly Burkhardt as well, right? That was the case for Molly Burkhardt. That was the case for other Osage. And by 1923, uh, there were officially more than uh, two dozen Osage murders. Those who tried to investigate the crimes were also killed. One lawyer was thrown off a speeding train. And one story that involves where we are right now, Washington, D.C., a oilman who was friendly with the Osage traveled uh, to Washington to try to get federal authorities to investigate. He checked into a boarding house. He received a telegram from an associate in Oklahoma that said, be careful. That night, he stepped out of the boarding house. He was abducted. At some point, somebody put a burlap sack over his head. His body was found in a culvert the next day. He had been beaten to death and stabbed more than 20 times. And it was then Jesus. that yeah, and it was then that the Washington Post uh, had a headline uh, which declared what the Osage already knew, which was uh, conspiracy to kill rich Indians. Right. So again, was this one? What did you find out? Was this one guy who was directing all of this, or was it just sort of a crime spree on part of a lot of people that happened to be taking place at the same time, targeting the same tribe? Yeah. So the FBI gets involved, um, yeah. and it becomes one of their first major homicide investigations, one of the first investigations of J. Edgar Hoover. Um, and their working theory is that there is one singular evil figure. And in fact, there was one figure who was uh, truly evil, 
who masterminded many, many murders. But one of the things... I forget his name. His I, name is William Hale. Right. And yeah. he was known as the king of the Osage Hills. And one of the things that um, I tried to show, though, was that the breadth of the killings was really far greater than the Bureau ever exposed, that there was a much deeper conspiracy. And this was less a story about who did it than who didn't do it. And that there were many conspirators. There were doctors who administered poisons. There were morticians who covered up bullet wounds in the back of the heads. There were reporters who ignored the crimes. There were politicians on the take. There were lawmen on the take. And so this really was uh, a widespread uh, conspiracy because of prejudice and because of greed. And they, um, people were making millions and millions of dollars through these crimes. Not getting ahead of the story, but what happened to the Osage? Yeah, so um, millions of dollars of Osage money was swindled. Uh Um, And to this day, there are headrights in the hands of descendants of the killers. A good deal of the money... Are there still Osage Indians? Yeah, there still are. Um, And it's important to point out that they remain a vibrant nation. There are still 4,000 or so Osage who live in uh, Oklahoma in that territory. Mm. Um, There are 20,000 altogether who have voted voting rights in their democratic institutions. And there was an Osage lawyer who, in fact, works in D.C. who told me, and I quote her in the book, you know, we were victims of these, this conspiracy, but we don't live as victims. Do, and um, are, are they still a wealthy tribe? I mean, do they, are there still oil? Are they still pumping oil there? And Yeah, so they still have uh, head rights, um, and they still have shares of the Mineral Trust, um, but much of the oil has been depleted over the years, so uh, the amount of money coming in is is much smaller. They have found, though, other sources of revenue, including from casinos. Mm. But it's important to point out that millions of dollars were stolen and never recovered. Right. Millions. I mean, you know, uh, there's no – it's hard to put an estimate on it, but it's fair to say hundreds of millions. Right. Uh, so it, how how many murder victims were you able to identify? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, it's, again, one of the, the, the things about these conspiracy, and because there was a cover-up, um, it's hard to put a precise number, but it's fair to say that there were scores, perhaps even hundreds. But one of the things that made these crimes, one of the things that I discovered was that the murderers not only took the victims' lives, they often deprive them of their history. Because one of the things that history can do is when there is an injustice is to come in and provide a proper accounting and at least record the voices of the victims and identify the murders. In some of these cases, because so many years has gone, because evidence is washed up, it's not possible. And so a secondary but no less nefarious crime was the denying of the Osage, even that history, to know exactly who the perpetrators were. So were any of the killers brought to justice? So some of them were brought to justice. And um, the Bureau, uh, FBI, initially badly bungled the case. Um, they got an outlaw out of jail who um, uh, they thought would be an informant. Instead, he slipped away, robbed the bank, and he killed the police officer. <laughs> and J. Edgar Hoover, um, the Bureau being in the news these days, but J. Edgar Hoover, hard to believe, uh, our most autocratic bureaucrat, was then very nervous about his position. He was only 29. He was the new director. And he recruited and brought in an old frontier lawman, a man named Tom, Tom White. White. Yeah. And Tom White um, didn't fit the image of the new <laughs> Bureau, which were these kind of college-educated kids who were said to uh, type faster than they shot. Uh, White was an old frontier lawman. And uh, he comes in, he puts together an undercover team, 
uh, interestingly enough, one of the undercover operatives was an American Indian, probably the only American Indian in the Bureau at the time. And they go in undercover. And ultimately, what they do is they follow the money to see who was benefiting. Oh, and yeah. that's what leads them uh, to people who, uh, a perpetrator who not only was prominent, but knew Molly, was somebody Molly trusted. And again, it gets to what made these crimes so sinister is that they involved a real intimacy, these crimes, a real level of betrayal that, again, it was often the people who the Osage trusted and thought loved them who were, in fact, um, killing them. Right. Uh, again, uh, apart from politics, uh, a little um, uh, unusual, perhaps, direction here for the Bill Press Show um, on, on this uh, Wednesday morning, June 14. Uh, the book is The Killers, Killers of the Flower Moon, uh, David Grand, the author here in studio with us, uh, it it reads just it's such a fast read, just like any great detective novel. Uh, and uh, but this is a true story, uh, an incredible story. I read it uh, a couple of weeks ago. Just was fascinated by it, particularly because I never heard anything about it. But so we didn't ask. I, I should have asked. The Flower Moon, where does that come from? So that comes out of Osage tradition. Um, The Osage name each month after a moon. And uh, the month of May is known as the Little Flower Killing Moon because at that time all these beautiful little flowers spread over the prairie. Um, But then the larger plants come and steal their water and light and they die. And it's in the month of May where Molly's sister, Anna, uh, is killed. And it's really the first hint that Molly's family is being targeted by this murderous conspiracy and indeed, the whole tribe is being targeted. Uh, and you start out the book talking about that scene of the prairies with the little flowers exactly. there blooming, right? Yes. So, um, well, but, but, so back to J. Edgar Hoover. It's, uh, the other fascinating story, sort of the parallel story, is that this was sort of the coming of uh, this. This made J. Edgar Hoover's career, didn't? It? I mean, this yeah. was like the first big case for the FBI to take on and. Yes, because it's important to understand the Bureau was a pretty uh, a ragtag operation at the time. Um, it had was a, it called the FBI? It, you know, interesting, it was called the Bureau of Investigation. It would later in the 1930s be renamed the FBI, the federal, they added the word federal. Right. Yeah. Uh, but it was the same organization, same institution. And um, they had limited jurisdiction over crimes, um, but they had jurisdiction over American Indian reservations. And so because these murders occurred on American Indian reservations, it became one of the first major homicide cases. Their, their purview of crimes would expand greatly during the 1930s. But yes, this became a very pivotal case in both the history of the Bureau in terms of its modernization, its professionalization. And of course, Hoover used it to cement his reputation. Um, but as I try to show in the book, he closed the case prematurely. And because of that, many murders went unsolved. And, of course, one of the ironies is Hoover, being a megalomaniac, um, never gave credit uh, to to Tom White or his operatives. The mm. only people who I could find who credited Tom White and the undercover operatives um, were the Osage, who issued a tribal resolution thanking them by name. So they knew the good work that he had done. He, right? They knew the good work that Tom White and his undercover operatives So this was kind of the making of J. Edgar Hoover then, I guess. It really right? was. He used it to cement his case, uh, to cement his reputation. Uh, to mythologize the Bureau. Um, and um, you could see one of the fascinating things about this is you could see all the ingredients um, of Hoover's character at a very formative period. <laughs> and you could also see something else that's really important. You could see this tension in the Bureau that we see playing out today, which is 
how to keep the Bureau from being politicized, how to keep it as simply a dogged law enforcement agency um, that would not succumb uh, to the powers of either a corrupt attorney justice, uh, attorney general, or... um, So all these tensions and themes you could see from the very early period of the Bureau still resonating today. I was going to say, they have not been resolved. (coughs) Pardon me. As we heard uh, in great detail yesterday over and over again, you know, with this... Uh, and last week, from James Comey himself, saying how uncomfortable he was with these meetings, uh, the nine meetings with Donald, or th- th- six telephone calls and three one-on-one meetings with Donald Trump, because he thought it was crossing the line of the proper relationship between a president and an independent law enforcement officer. And even Je- Jeff Sessions yesterday said, uh, certainly if it gets to the point of talking about any ongoing investigations, it's totally improper. Yeah, I mean, one of the things, if there was one theme that came out of my research for this book that really made me appreciate was how important it, how important it is that we be a country of laws and that the powerful are not able to tilt the scales of justice. The Osage murders went on for years because the victims were Native Americans and because of prejudice and because the powerful in the region were able to corrupt and tilt the scales of justice. The struggle to build an independent national police force, being the FBI, has been a long, tortured evolution. Um, and... The norms that have evolved over years are incredibly important. Um, This has not been just a clean evolution. Uh, The Bureau did some very good work in the Osage murder case, but then Hoover used the Bureau uh, in many ways for uh, bribery, for his own illegal surveillance. Um, And so a lot of the norms that we're talking about today have been a gradual evolution. I mean, even the 10-year term of Comey, uh, of an FBI director, came out of Hoover being in control of the Bureau for nearly five decades, nearly five decades, immune from oversight. And so that 10-year norm uh, evolved the same way the Justice Department put in norms about how the Bureau should uh, deal with crimes close to elections. Um, It's easy to underestimate how important these norms are and how they have evolved over time um, and why they are so important. And when you go back and you look at this case, you realize why they are so important. So uh, has the FBI director become too powerful? I mean, there there is a – some people said this about the firing of James Comey and and all the problems that that created for Donald Trump – Maybe he learned why presidents before have been very reluctant if, uh, you know, to fire an FBI yeah. director, and particularly the, those Johnson and, and others um, who wouldn't fire J. Edgar Hoover. So I think most people would agree that we need some form of federal policing, especially with counterterrorism. Um, the evolution in the, uh, the country really as it became more – uh, roads and and it was easy to travel before states. You needed some type of federal policing force, which is why Teddy Roosevelt decided we needed the FBI, needed a bureau. Um, but the needs for oversight, uh, the need for independence. How do you have a national police force when the person overseeing it is an attorney general, which is a political point? All of this has been has an inherent tension. And the evolution and the resolution of the tension has been these norms. Um, and it's been an evolving process. But we see to this day how the tension remains, how it can be potentially abused. Um, 
And we also see, which I think is important, why these norms are so important, um, because you can go back in history and see times where um, the national police force uh, abused civil liberties and abused oh, its yeah. power. Yeah, and in the person of J. Edgar Hoover. And J. Edgar Hoover. And right. Comey, even in his hearing, mentioned when his briefing the ghost of J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah, which must hang over that. I always, always will. Right. Yeah. And so um, but on the other hand, the, By the way, is, don't I recall the FBI building is named it, after Hoover. Yes. was named yeah. after. Hoover. Yeah. But on the other hand, the need for a dogged police force that pursues investigations the way Tom White did. Um, is yeah. also essentially important and could do great work. Mm-hmm. And so there really have been almost these two bodies within the Bureau that have exist going back into time. Uh, so I, I don't know how long you're in Washington or whether you've been there, but 12 blocks like due east from here is the Congressional Cemetery where you can visit the grave, oh, as I have many times, of J. Edgar Hoover uh, with his partner, Clyde Tolson, Clyde just uh, <laughs> not quite next door, but just down the the, the row from him. Um, what does this story tell you about um, our treatment of the Native Americans? Well, I think it is a microcosm, and um, it really is a, a story about the clash of 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 these two white settlers. And Native Americans, all these forces playing out. Um, the original sin, in many ways, from which the country was born. What is remarkable is that this clash is playing out as late as the early 20th century. We're not talking about the colonial yeah, yeah, era. Right. And I would say that, um, you know, these are forces that have not been fully resolved to this day. Um, I interviewed a young Osage, a veteran of the Army, um, who received a Purple Heart in Afghanistan. Um, during the Standing Rock demonstrations in North Dakota with the Sui, he walked uh, nearly the whole way from Oklahoma uh, to North Dakota to participate in those demonstrations. During that quest or pilgrimage, he told me, he thought a lot about the Osage murders, uh, which is something that the Osage deeply remember, have not forgotten. And for him, even though the incidents are separated by nearly a century, the details of what is happening is very different. The Sui are not getting wealthy from oil. They're trying to protect their land. He said it's still the same fundamental issue, issue, which is the rights of Native Americans to protect their lands and resources, their own sovereign rights. Yeah, rights which which we have as a people never respected throughout our history. And there has been even talk um, among some advisors um, to this administration about further trying to privatize reservations. That was really the unfettered dream of a lot of the killers in the Osage case um, who wanted to end and break up um, uh, any uh, Mm. Osage territory. Um, And uh, a former Osage chief told me, you know, it's 2017 and I can't believe we're Still having this fight and this debate to this day. Uh, yeah, but that's and that's true of many different tribes on and on you know different reservations around the country. You can't understand something like Standing Rock um, unless you understand the Osage case and unless you understand the other episodes in 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 um, other tribes. It's why that galvanized because many of them have their own Osage murder cases. The particulars may be different, but the fight over. Uh, and the onslaught um, and the theft of their national resources is a part of their history. One of the things that impressed me uh, in the book was that, um, which I guess is a reflection on some of the 
uh, inadequacies of the FBI at the time or other law enforcement officers is that you were able to get in and look at some of these crimes and look at some of these cases and what 50 100 years later actually figure out who 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 killed some of these people you could find the culprits right the guilty people where they were not able to back then yeah i mean when you get into the archives you begin to um so the evidence was there they just didn't look at it they didn't that? look at it they co- closed the case prematurely hoover wanted to wrap the case up to clear it a triumph and i think to some degree psychologically it was probably easier to think of it as being perpetrated by this kind of one singular evil force as opposed to the, the notion that this greed this prejudice this avarice lurked in the hearts of so many seemingly ordinary uh, people. But I looked into one case in particular of the lawyer who was thrown off the speeding train. Yeah, right. And I tracked down uh, their her granddaughter and interviewed her. And then I went and gathered evidence that identified, I think, a very strong circumstantial case who was responsible for that killing. And I remember calling her up, the granddaughter, telling her what I had found, and she began to cry over the phone. And I remember feeling really bad, thinking, well, maybe I shouldn't be telling her this. And then she said, no, 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 we have been living with this for so long. And it's one of the things I realized doing this research, even nearly a century later, that this is still living history, and that when there are cases that remain unresolved, they really haunt families. Um, and again, yeah. it gets back to that thing about the perpetrators denying even mm-hmm. people their history. Yeah. A, a great book and great job on the research, uh, David. Congratulations. Thank you again. so much. It is uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. David Grant is the author, available of your local bookstore or anywhere you get books like Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble, whatever. Thank you for coming in, David. Thank All you. right. Here's your summary, folks. Go get it. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to The Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now, do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Jeff Sessions dominating the day yesterday, but telling senators almost absolutely nothing. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say? It is Wednesday, June 14. This is the Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., continuing with the news of the day. Um, And we are joined in studio now by Jason Dick, a good friend of ours, leadership and enterprise editor at CQ Roll Call. Uh, and we start this hour, however, with some very, very troubling and disturbing breaking news this uh, right from our backyard. This is a backyard. Bill Press Show breaking news update. 
Jason and Peter? Yeah. uh, So this is happening now. There's not a whole lot of details. But, you know, the congressional baseball game is tomorrow night here in Washington, D.C. Dan Kildee from from Michigan, who's part of the team, was in studio with us telling us about it last week. It's a big deal. Yeah, Democrats take on Republicans at Nationals Ballpark. Uh, And so this morning was apparently the final practice for the Republicans. They practice in Delray, which is in Alexandria, Virginia, just across the river. And a gunman opened fire on the Republicans' practice this morning, firing 50 shots, according to reports, 50 shots from a rifle. Uh, Congressman Steve Scalise was hit. They report say he is expected to be okay. Other staffers were hit. Mo Brooks, a senator, said that he took his belt off to use as a tourniquet on Steve Scalise to stop the bleeding. Uh, That's about all the detail that we have as of now. Um, Not sure how many other aides were shot, but Steve Scalise has been confirmed as one of the people hit by the gunman in Virginia. Oh, this, uh, Jason, so this tar- this man, I'm, we know very little, but uh, must have known about this practice, targeted this practice, right? I mean, it, it seems doubtful that it could be random like that. I mean, the, the, the number of, I mean, it looks like a few other people were shot as well. Uh, we haven't seen any indication that anyone has, has died, but... I mean, th- this, you know, the, the Capitol Police are, are at these practices to make sure that people like Steve Scalise, people in leadership are protected. Uh, and it, it's it's really um, it, it just casts a real pal over <laughs> over something like, you know, over I mean, a, a tragic, you know, a shooting like this is tragic regardless. But, you know, the congressional baseball game has been one of these the, the few rays of, of sort of hope, yeah. you know, and 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 uh, yeah. you know, in in Congress in in recent years, it's one of the few. Uh, times when members of Congress from both sides of the aisle and from both chambers sort of, you know, kind of seem to put aside their differences and and kind of come together and have a little fun. And this this is just this is a real this is a real vulnerable thing. And I mean, they take it seriously. I mean, you know, we were talking to Dan Kildee about this last week. This is hardball. This is baseball. Right. This is real stuff. And they go to Nat Stadium. Right. 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 And this is the men. Um, Actually, there are a few women who play. Linda Sanchez. Right, that's true. Uh, yeah. Before before the congressional. This with a... Well, the, so the, the, there is a congressional softball game. Yes, but right. before before that congressional softball game got off the ground, this it's uh, you know it's, it's been around for a few years now. But uh, people like uh, Ileana Rosletten and the Republican from, congresswoman yeah. from Miami, she played uh, in it. Maria Cantwell at one point played uh, in the in the congressional baseball game. So there there have been women who who have played in it, um, and it's and, and as you said, they they do take it seriously. Uh, they they like to brag about it. They sort of uh, you know the, there there are streaks that that start showing up, uh, and they practice for for quite so literally this months. Was, this was the Republican right. team, right? Uh, members of uh, con- Congress, Republican members, right. and their staff gathered in Alexandria, right. Virginia, at a field there for their final practice. Right. The game would be tomorrow night, Peter. It's tomorrow night. Tomorrow yeah. night at, at seven at, at Nats Park, and and you know the the also the people who help put this congressional baseball game on, and the proceeds of which go to charity. Uh, they're you know they're they're staffers and they're you know former members and in re- retired you know yeah. you know folks folks uh, you know people who have been associated with the game who do it on a volunteer basis. Quick thing yeah. to point out: the Alexander uh, Alexandria, Virginia police uh, spokesman says that the initial report is that the suspect is in custody, but that's all we know at this point.
on your radio, on TV, and online. This is The Bill Press Show. What do you say, everybody? Good to see you today on this Wednesday, uh, June 14. It is The Bill Press Show. We're coming to you live from Washington, D.C., with some uh, very um, stunning and startling breaking news today uh, impacting this area, uh, members of Congress, uh, and and, um, uh, an event happening right across the river in Alexandria, Virginia, where the Republican members of Congress would be participating in the congressional baseball game tomorrow night and their final practice uh, a gunman showed up, opened fire on the crowd there. Uh, one representative, at least we know of, uh, Representative Steve Scalise from Louisiana, has been struck, Has was was hit by gunfire. Uh, several other people have been hit. We're waiting for getting more details. Uh, Peter, why don't you... Uh, Jason Dickey here with us from uh, Roll Call. Uh, we came in to talk about Jeff Sessions and others, but uh, we want to bring you up to date on this breaking news and find out as much as we can. So the congressional baseball game that happens uh, every year around this time, the Democrats take on the Republicans at Nationals Ballpark. They take this very seriously. They practice. We've had uh, Tim Ryan come in a couple weeks ago in full baseball gear. Like they, they really get out there and they practice, and they do it early. Uh, because they have to go to work, obviously. Um, the Capitol Police do actually sort of secure the area where these teams play and where they practice. Um, and so the Republicans were practicing in Delray and Alexandria, just mm. over the river mm-hmm. from Washington, D.C. And uh, Mo Brooks is actually giving an interview on CNN uh, right now. I'm just reading some of the quotes from it. He says he was on deck with his bat in hand. He heard the gunshots, saw a rifle, and heard Steve Scalise scream that he was shot. Scalise was on second base at the time. Uh, Mo Brooks took his belt off and immediately used it as a tourniquet. Uh, Other staffers were hit. The Alexandria Police Department says that the gunman is in custody. There are varying reports of what else might have happened to the gunman. It's breaking news, so we'll just go with what the Alexandria Police Department says for now. But um, this is troubling. This is very, very troubling. It, it is, and you know one of one of the things that we one of the reasons that we sort of love covering the congressional baseball game at, at roll call is that you know with all the partisanship that we're dealing with, with all the you know yeah. some of the harder news that we that we tackle uh, in in kind of tough times, right? You know, we we the congressional baseball game has been this constant of you know people actually. I mean, yes, they take it seriously. Sometimes they get hurt uh, in in the in the course of the games or practices. But at the same time, they they realize that hey, this is you know we're 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 actually <laughs> competing against one another in a way that is is kind of healthy, and and we put aside our differences, and we you know we all sort of play on the same field, and it's it's just a it it's really um, it well I don't know, it just sucks you know I mean it, it it's it's really uh, horrible to see you know that this this kind of thing happen. I mean it, I. It reminds me a little bit of the of the Gifford shooting in in Arizona of course. Yeah. in 2011, where you know she was out there bright and early in the morning at a at a Safeway, you know, just wanting to talk to constituents, and people were coming up and you know just sort of airing you know the, what what they wanted to talk about with their local congressman on a Saturday morning in in Tucson, just north of Tucson, and I mean you know somebody just opened fire. You know, obviously we'll find out more, but it, it's it's just so unlikely that this was a random shooting that the guy. Uh, first of all, the idea to me still, I'm sorry, 
to, to raise the issue of guns, but the idea that anybody could have one of these high-powered rifles uh, in his possession um, is, I think, just wrong, wrong, wrong. These assault weapons, but and apparently that's what he used. Um, but that he would just uh, very uh, unlikely that he would just be traveling along and see a baseball practice and just, and stop and open fire. He must have known, most likely knew these were members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, uh, and and knew they were going to be there and showed up and. And open fire. A couple of their uh, little notes here that we're getting as this uh, is unfolding. Fox News is tweeting that Steve Scalise was shot in the hip uh, during the practice. And Mo Brooks, uh, who is already giving interviews, who's on CNN, actually, I think, as, as, as we, we speak. speak I'm right. just reading some of the tweets of people quoting what he's saying. He says that. Uh, between 50 to 100 shots must have been fired in exchange with the shooter because, again, the Capitol Police are there as security detail while they, uh, while they practice. MSNBC is reporting that two Capitol Police officers were shot as well. Man. Uh, and uh, Steve Scalise, the majority whip, Jason, right? He, he is the majority whip. And, uh, and, and it, from all accounts, you know, one of the more affable uh, and easy to get along with Folks in, in Congress, who represents a district that's uh, that encompasses the, the sort of greater New Orleans area, um, and you know, is he he and his uh, he and his staff, you know, they they actually have uh, you know a lot of, at these games. They have a lot of signs. Steve Scalise has played in the games a lot, and his staff will show up with with signs that that have "Go Scalise" and it, it'll be spelled you know G E A U A U X. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, right. in and you know. You know, Scalise is uh, is is sort of proud of of his um, you know sort of Louisiana and Cajun heritage. He's actually pr- quite good friends with Cedric Richmond, uh, who's the Democrat who represents New Orleans. Uh, a, a couple of years ago, when there was some issues about you know whether Scalise had had said nice things uh, or had, had uh, you know had supported a, a, a group, spoken he'd spoken to a group. Uh, that was affiliated a with white David supremacist Duke, group. Yeah, down yeah. in uh, yeah. Louisiana. Uh, Cedric Richmond was actually one of the first people to defend Scalise, saying, "I've served with this man in the state house. There's, he's not a racist." I mean, it's it's a really, you know, it's it's a rough, you know, it's rough. To, it's shaky to see these kind of things, and especially you know with the the overhang of just how tense things are in Congress right now too, and, and in Washington. You know, we are in a uh, just a tense period of time. It's it's you know we we need things like the congressional baseball game to sort of keep us, uh, you know, keep our spirits up and to to anchor us that you know it's it's not all just mortal combat uh, on a, on a partisan level. And for for something like this to be, you know, kind of uh, to and have to endure something like this is just. I mean, it's a it's a scar. This Oof. is worth one of the things worth pointing out. By the way, uh, one of the members of Congress that's on the team, uh, Congressman Brad Winstrup, is a physician and immediately ran over and helped tend to, to, to Scalise. Scalise, after he was hit, this is um, uh, a little bit violent. Uh, after he was hit, c- couldn't walk. He was hit in the hip, in the hip, and sort of dragged his body into the outfield, leaving a trail of blood behind him. According to Mo Brooks. Um, Mo Brooks says he believes five people were shot, uh, but that is just coming from Mo Brooks, who was on the scene. That's not an official number. Um, so that is uh, we're just kind of watching as this stuff comes that comes in live. And uh, both uh, MSNBC and CNN reporting that uh, Congressman Scalise is in stable uh, condition, uh, probably at the lo- a local hospital there, I right, guess, uh, which is good news coming right. out of there. But uh, what a what a shocking. Um, 
event uh, incident this morning. Uh, as uh, this news is breaking, um, all the cable news is that's all they're talking about right now. And as we get more, Peter, if you could monitor yeah. that as we anything breaks, anything else changes, along. Uh, we'll let you know. Meanwhile, Jason, Bill, Jeff Sessions appearing in front of the Senate Intelligence Committee yesterday. What did we learn? We learned that Jeff Sessions is not really eager to talk too much about his <laughs> conversations with the president. Uh, he he had a couple of um, testy exchanges about why you know he didn't want to answer some questions. He uh, he was he was quick to say that the the president was not invoking executive privilege, but that he might at some point. And for that reason, uh, Sessions wanted to keep conversations uh, sort of un- under the radar. We also learned you- a couple, you know, that that Sessions has uh, never uh, been briefed on anything regarding Russia and and their meddling, you know, which is a, the consensus of the intelligence community uh, in last year's elections. Which seems, I mean, even with the, even if you're recused from an investigation of it, uh, it would seem um, incurious. Uh, I want to ask you about both of those. So first of all, certainly, he came in uh, hot under the collar that anybody would suggest that he had anything to do with anything untoward uh, when it comes to the election, uh, denouncing it right in his opening statement as a detestable, detestable lie. Here he is. And the suggestion that I participated in any collusion that I was aware of any collusion with the Russian government to hurt this country, which I have served with honor for 35 years, or to undermine the integrity of our democratic process is an appalling and detestable lie. There it is. Man. There we go. Jefferson, Beauregard Sessions, uh, not happy that anybody would question Right, his in, in, integrity, laying, laying down a marker, right, right there, right, yeah. Um, but then he's asked, okay, uh, so what did you talk to the president about? About why? Is it, tell us about you know what Donald Trump told you about why he wanted to fire James Comey before you wrote that phony memo, right? right? And his answer was, not, I'm not going to talk not, about not it. Not going there, right? Uh, it, it was I. I kept on. It's, it's hard not to contrast. The Sessions testimony with I mean, because James Comey came before the same committee just last week, just a few Thursday. days ago. Uh, you know, in in terms of of tone, of style, of delivery, of mannerisms. Um, you know, it, it's uh, people. You know, they. I'll I'll just go ahead and say it. I mean, people. You know, they they fixate a little bit on on Sessions' accent. Uh, you know, I mean, he he's. In some ways, he's almost uh, you know for for people who want to caricature the South, you know he's like their he's he's the person who fits the bill for them. Of yeah, uh, I mean he he is um, from from all accounts, you know, like from from any kind of like exposure to Sessions over the last you know twenty years of of, of covering Congress of observing Congress, he is a, a sincere person and and he is you know a, 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 he is serious about public service. Um, now that doesn't mean that his his viewpoints that he, that the public you know that, that his view of what public service should be is is uh, in accord with you know the his colleagues certainly not Democrats but a lot of Republicans but it, it's getting beyond that I mean because I just, I just want and I just wanted to lay that out because you know like yeah. Co- Comey is you know from 
Connecticut, you know, and he's six foot six foot eight, and you know, sort of is, is the uh, he's almost like the he's the caricature of the Boy Scout, right? I right. Mean, you know, he he stands up straight, unlike me, and you know, <laughs> and, you know, sort of talks, you know, like you know, gives it to he's the, he's the you know ultimate straight shooter G man, right? And then Recessions is is short, and he's got this accent, and you know, and he and he's got these ears that car- political cartoonists love, and so forth, and so so just separating just that the style delivery. The interactions when they got tense between senators and and him, and not just not just Democrats, but in, in even some Republicans, it's it it was when you, when you look at that, it it's hard to think that like this is this is as good as it gets, you know, for the the country's top law enforcement. I mean, if you if you if you want somebody like sort of in kind of in the clutch, you know, like, do you really want to say like, I'm being rushed? You know, you, you keep on right. asking questions. You know, I, I'm, I'm feeling pressure. Slow down. So slow right. down. I mean, that's that's not I mean, you, I, you know, just on a very like surface level, you want like somebody who's in the cabinet of the United States to, to be able to hold their own. And for, you know, say a freshman Democratic senator from California to, to get under his skin like that, even if that was her intent. Uh, he, you know, you, you have to be better when you're attorney general of the United States. You you want to be right. calm under pressure. And Sessions was not calm right. um, by, by any measure. And again, so he refuses to answer the question. It's, it's a basic question about did you talk to the president about firing Comey before you wrote that phony memo that we're going to fire him because he was too mean to Hillary Clinton, which nobody believed. And the very next day, Donald Trump says, no, nah, that's not why I fired him. He told the Russians in right. the Oval Office, I fired him because – because of Russia. He's a nut job. Right, he's a nut because job. Because of Russia. I wouldn't Russia get it off thing. my back and everything. So, and then for good and measure, he told Lester Holt on NBC. They told Lester <laughs> the nightly Holt. news. Exactly, yeah. He repeats. <laughs> Just so, in case you missed it. Right, <laughs> if right. You're not, if you're not, like, listening right. to the, you know, Soviet propaganda news services. <laughs> so so then, you know, so his reasoning, his, his kind of logic, which is hard to follow for not answering that question, is, okay, uh, only the president can invoke executive privilege. The president has not invoked executive privilege, but I'm still going to refuse to answer the question. Well, how can you do that when only the president can do it and when the president has decided not to do it? And he says, well, just because in case the president someday might might want to invoke executive privilege, I want to protect him and give him that opportunity. But the real question was, did you or not? What did you talk about? Did you or did you not? have a conversation with Donald Trump about firing James Comey before you wrote that phony memo. That, I think, Ron Wyden, Ron Wyden, Senator Ron Wyden, I think, said it right. You are stonewalling. Here is the memo. That, man, Jeff Sessions didn't want to hear that. Senator Wyden, I uh, am not stonewalling. <laughs> I am following the historic policies of the Department of Justice. Yeah. All right, there it is. Which he couldn't cite. He couldn't I mean, cite. It, it, when, no. when, when when he was asked for the basis of is what, that in what, writing? Of, of, yeah, of why he was, no. you know, what he was citing from multiple senators. He said, "Well, I, I'm sure it's somewhere, or you know, something along those lines." I mean, it was it was not. A, I mean, there was no bombshell coming out of this. But the thing that is, um, it, it it just didn't the optics, you know, for for lack of a better term. And you know, when it comes to things like. Impeachment and presidential popularity and things like this. I mean, a lot of it comes down to perception. You know, this is also coming on the heels of this 
cabinet meeting where you know they everybody took their turn sort of trying to outdo how you know each other on how much they love the president and what a blessing and an honor it is to serve and so forth I mean it's something that is you know I've never seen anything like that I mean and, and you know that there is the there are these reports that you know Sessions has been in hot water with Trump because he recused himself in the first place and so you know who knows? Maybe Sessions was trying to get back into the the big guy's graces by by saying like, I know you didn't uh, you know invoke inve- executive privilege, boss, but just in case you do, I'm gonna we're gonna leave all of our options open. And it you know it it so that it's not like some mortal wound was landed on on Trump in in this unfolding Russia scandal, but it certainly doesn't help, especially when your approval ratings are already at or your disapproval ratings are at sixty percent now. Your approval ratings are mired in the thirties. And you continue to press, you know, legislation that's incredibly unpopular. Right. So then the other issue, which you, you pointed out, too, that I thought was uh, approaches the unbelievable. Well, two others. First, the famous meeting at the Mayflower Hotel or the famous. And it had to be the Mayflower, right? You know, it was, uh, of course, was it it in the Elliot Spitzer no. room or was, did, maybe the, <laughs> did they meet in the uh, the restaurant named after J. Edgar Hoover? I mean, come on. Could you really a not find on like, the nose? Yeah. Here, guys. Can you can't you meet at the Omni or something? Come right. on. <laughs> right. and, and so his story is that he was there April 27th. Donald Trump's giving a big speech candidate before the speech. He's in a little reception. He said maybe a couple of dozen people, okay? That's not a big crowd. And it's hard to miss somebody like Kislyak. And Kislyak is as big <laughs> as a bear, right? He and really he, is the Russian he, bear. Well, he is the Russian bear. <laughs> and 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 Sessions wants us to believe, and Donald Trump comes in and shakes hand all the way around, and Sessions wants us to believe that he doesn't even remember. He's a U.S. senator <laughs> if the ambassador was in that room. Here he is. If any brief interaction occurred in passing with the Russian ambassador during that reception, I do not remember it. Yeah. He, so he doesn't remember whether he was there, if he shook his hand, if he talked to him. But, but of course, if I did talk to him, there was nothing consequential. I, I frankly do not believe that. It's, it is. I, I mean, when you when you're when your two options that you're you're I've claiming been to a are thousand are, yeah, of those yeah. receptions. <laughs> you notice. Yeah. You notice. You know, everybody's you know, there. If you're right. in, the, in politics, that's your job. Right. And and you know when your two options are claiming either you know that that you're ignorant of the situation or that you may be deceiving people you know cynicism yeah. or 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 stupidity, I mean th- those aren't great things to fall back on you know. So so then we get to the point that you made, which is, okay, now the election's over, and we find out from all of our intelligence agencies unanimous that the Russians are trying to were, were responsible for doing the hacking and trying to interfere with this election in order to help Donald Trump get elected. Our foreign adversary, Russia, is involved in this. Jeff Sessions is the head of Donald Trump's national security team and that neither he nor Donald Trump ever asked for any briefing or any information about what the Russians were up to. Never even inquired. So here's Angus King uh, who really bores in on that with uh, Jeff Sessions. You never sought any information about this uh, rather dramatic attack on our country? Uh, no. You never, was... you never asked for a briefing or attended a briefing or uh, read well, the intelligence reports? You might have been very critical of me if I, as an active part of the campaign, was seeking intelligence. Well, hardly. I'm critical because he didn't seek intelligence. Again, Angus King follows up on that one. You received no briefing on the Russian active measures in connection with the 2016 election? No. 
I don't believe I ever did. That is unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, what? <laughs> so the residents are trying to steal our election, and he doesn't give a damn, and neither did Donald Trump. It should, it should uh, point out, too, that uh, Angus King, former radio host, former radio host up in Maine. So he, oh, he, wow, he knows, really? You know, I didn't right, know that. Right, he know knows that. how to bore in on on questions. What a voice, uh, too. A tough yeah, question, right? What a voice, what a mustache, Angus King. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Maine. So it is... It strains the, the 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 very boundaries of believability. That, I mean, again, it's 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 hard to take like a statement like that at face value. Except that it's this is just such an ex- weird, extraordinary time. And you know, Donald Trump seems. I mean, they, they talk about Bill Clinton being a compartmentalizer. I mean, I. I I, I I've never seen anything like this. I've never seen a president, you know, just wall things off entirely. I mean that that there that there would be, you know, entire swaths of the population that he would not even try to to uh, you know sort of broker, you mm-hmm. know, like a, a a piece with that. I don't know. It, it it's it does maybe maybe it's true. Maybe they really are that incurious. I mean, it, I I think it's it's it bears, you know, sort of consideration that maybe the you know their there is such a a level of amateurism in the, in the campaign uh, that that they that they didn't. I mean, it, it it does. It seems truly unbelievable, but like we're just in extraordinary times, right? Uh, now. There's also one other possibility: is that they were in fact colluding with the Russians, correct? And um, they didn't want any briefing because they didn't want to. You know, they wanted to keep as much distance as they could from that. Uh, time short, but I wanted to ask you about one other issue today sure. is. So uh, in the last couple of days, uh, two days ago, the attorney generals of uh, the District of Columbia Mm -hmm. and the state of Maryland filed a lawsuit against the president of the United States saying he is in violation of the emoluments clause of the Constitution. Mm -hmm. He is profiting, uh, accepting money from foreign governments and foreign agents through his properties, his Mm -hmm. hotel particularly here in Washington, D.C., uh, the New York Times reporting, and you in roll call probably have reported this morning, too. I'm sorry I haven't seen your paper yet this morning. Uh, Democrats in Congress, nearly 200 Democratic members of Congress are expected to file a lawsuit today accusing President Trump of the same thing, violating the Constitution by profiting from business dealings with foreign governments. Yeah, this is a, an effort that is led by uh, uh, Senator Richard Blumenthal, uh, Democrat from Connecticut, former state attorney general there, and also somebody who is, uh, has shown a, an incredible ability to get under Trump's skin for some reason, uh, and, uh, and John Conyers in, in the House, the ranking Democrat on the Judiciary Committee. Um, it will be interesting to see, like, w- how these lawsuits sort of go forward. I mean, it seems like the the attorneys but, general, as well as members of Congress, are are making their case already that they do have standing that they that to file these lawsuits. It always comes down to whether yeah. you're being injured, uh, whether you can demonstrate injury. What the Democrats are arguing is that in in the emoluments clause in the Constitution, you. you uh, a president needs the consent of Congress in order to receive any kind of gift, whether it's uh, right. you know that uh, sword from Saudi Arabia, say, or uh, or or payments to the uh, Trump Steakhouse uh, in in the International Hotel. So that that's the legal ground that the that the members of Congress are going. With it's a little different with the attorneys general. I mean, they're saying this is in our backyard. I mean, like you know, and it, there are and, other businesses that are being 
hurt right. by Donald Trump's right. advantage here. There, there's also another lawsuit on on from competitor business competitors from for the yes. Trumps for for hotel business who, who have who have filed but, this same sort of lawsuit this, citing emolument. This gets right to the heart, doesn't it, of Donald Trump's financial conflicts, not divesting himself, so he's still profiteering, right, from the White House, right. basically. Uh, it's and. There is also this the, is the way that gets into Donald Trump's tax returns, too. right? Exactly. I was just going to say that this this may be one of the ways that that there is. I mean, if, if particularly if they, if they continue in winning in court, they they have they demonstrate standing and they can depose uh, members of the Trump organization, so where they could possibly get a you know a, a look at the tax returns, which would I mean if if it, you know usually it's like okay if you if you say you're not profiting from you know the the some sort of delegation who comes in and is, is spending two hundred thousand dollars in a week at a Trump uh, hotel in Singapore or, or in Washington and so forth. Like, let's see the let's see the tax returns. Let's see that you don't have these sort of things. And so it it could be it could get sticky very quickly. Right now, I think th- this is very significant. Not getting a lot of attention, but this gets right to the heart. I think of the uh, I say of the business dealings with Donald Trump and and uh, and if a- anything's a serious problem for him. This could be, this could prove to be more serious than the Comey's firing James Comey. Yep. Yeah. So, Jason, great to see you. It's roll call, rollcall.com. We check out for all the news of Washington here, either what's happening in Congress or down at the White House. No better source. Thank you, Jason. Great Thanks, to Bill. see you. Great to be here. Ryan Riley is the senior justice reporter for HuffPost, uh, joining us next here on the Bill Press Show. Don't forget on June sixteenth. June 14th is my birthday, but June 16th was the day I announced that I was running. Some people said, really? Is that going to happen? And it happened. But it's been exactly, so in three days, it's exactly two years. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Here we are on Wednesday, June uh, 14. Uh, it is The Bill Press Show, live from our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., in our studio on uh, Capitol Hill. Good to have all of you with us uh, today, a coast to coast, on YouTube, YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show, on Free Speech TV. And out on uh, WCPT in the Chicago area, welcome to the studio, senior justice reporter for HuffPost, Ryan Riley. Hey, Ryan. Good hey, to see you today. Me. Thank you. And we are tracking the uh, breaking news this morning. If you're just joining us, a very tragic situation across the river in Alexandria, Virginia, Alexandria, Virginia, where baseball practice for Republican members of Congress practicing for tomorrow night's congressional baseball game, uh, a great tradition here in Washington, D.C., where Republican members of Congress uh, line up against uh, Democratic members of Congress. They've all been practicing hard for that. Congressman Tim Ryan and uh, Dan Kildee, uh, both members of the team, have been in studio with us. Congressman Ryan in baseball uniform, Dan Kildee just coming from practice last week. These were the Republicans uh, in uh, practicing at a field near Alexandria, Virginia, 
where a gunman showed up, opened fire, fired some 50 to 100 shots. Uh, among those hit was Congressman Steve Scalise, the majority whip of the House, um, congressman from Louisiana, also a couple of police. He is, uh, we're told, in stable condition, and a couple of Capitol Police officers were struck as well. Peter, uh, what's the latest beyond that? Uh, Rand Paul is speaking. He was there. He was on MSNBC earlier. He said that... Um uh, here it is. Steve Scalise, this is from Rand Paul. This is fascinating, actually. So Steve, the fact that Steve Scalise was there likely saved everybody because his president, his presence, because he's leadership, meant that there was extra Capitol Police there. Mm. Normally, the Capitol Police do have, uh, like, they, they provide the security for these situations, but because he's a member of the leadership, there was extra security there. And he said, quote from Rand Paul, if the Capitol Police had not been there, it would have been a massacre. Mm. Alexandria police confirmed that the suspect is in custody. There were some reports that he had been shot and killed. That is not true, apparently, according to the police, that he is uh, in custody. And Donald Trump has issued a statement, not a tweet, but a statement, uh, a statement from President Donald J. Trump from the White House, quote, the vice president and I are aware of the shooting incident in Virginia and are monitoring developments closely. We are deeply saddened by this tragedy. Our thoughts and prayers are with the members of Congress, their staffs, Capitol Police, first responders and all others affected. Uh, and uh, as to the idea that this might have been just a random shooting at a group of people uh, playing baseball, the um Alexandria Police or the Capitol Police, one of them, have, have uh, issued a statement this morning saying this was a deliberate attack uh, at, aimed at members of Congress. Uh, also, the schools in Alexandria, Virginia, are on lockdown this morning, probably as a precaution because, uh, Peter, I think you said the, the suspect is in custody and they don't think there are other people uh, involved. He was described by Congressman Mo Brooks from Alabama, who was also there on the team, he was at bat. He was, at, yeah, he, he was in was the a, batting circle. Yeah. Described as a um, middle-aged white male. Yeah, middle-aged white male, a little bit on the chubby side is how Mo Brooks described him. Uh, and Congressman Brooks, uh, didn't you say he had? Well, there were there was a physician. There was a the physician other, there on site. Uh, one of who, the co- members of Congress. I forgot his name now. Uh, but Mo Brooks had a belt that he took off and used as a tourniquet. Uh, on, I'm not sure if it was on Scalise or someone else who had been shot. So um, th- this actually begs the question. Jamie and I were talking about this during the break of whether or not the baseball game goes on tomorrow night. Hard to say. Yeah, it's hard to at say this at this point. point right? right. You know, uh, I think a lot of it will depend on uh, the condition of Congressman Scalise. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I could see that they could, they could say, you know, we have to do this, right? And we're not yeah. going to be go cowed. If, if it does, you better believe the security presence at Nats Holy Park tomorrow is going to be insane. We already saw, I just saw a picture from the Capital South Metro. There is increased police presence outside of the Capital South Metro right now. So, scary situation all around. Definitely a controlled environment there, though. Because, I mean, this is surprising because you have, you know, members of Congress essentially operating out in the open. I mean, you know, where, I mean, they had a security presence there, certainly, but it's not a controlled environment at all. And that's not. You know, when you have that many members of Congress and that many in one location, it's a, it's a different, it's a target. But the other thing is, I, uh, now we know, look, we're sort of inside, all of us, right, here, insiders, okay? So we know that this game takes place, and we know that the members practice. And we probably know where they practice. 
I mean, Dan killed. I know where, they, us, where the Democrats told practice. us last yeah, week. Absolutely. Uh, I forget exactly what field. I don't want to say it on the air. Um, but how many people do? I mean, how many people would know that the Republican members of Congress were going to be at this field in Delray, Virginia? I mean, you'd have to do some research. You'd have to be connected. In yeah, some way. you'd have was. to be. You'd have to be connected somehow. Yeah, I believe. I think it was Mo Brooks who said that. Who was it? Was it Mo Brooks who spoke with the shooter before? This is a reporter. Oh no! Yeah, that. yeah. That, that's that's a report that Mo Brooks says that he might have spoken to him. Yeah. Before it happened, it, I'm not sure if that's been. Uh, or was it? Or was it? It might have been. Actually, it might have been another member who left. But apparently, a member. Uh, Jeff Duncan. Yeah. Jeff a member, Duncan. A member who left said that they had a so that Jeff Duncan had a discussion and apparently it asked if this was Republicans or Democrats who are practicing. So I mean, there's a lot we don't know, obviously, right now, but. It's still an unconfirmed report, but okay. that was yeah. tweeted out by someone who spoke to Jeff Duncan. Yeah. But he had actually talked with the shooter. Yes. Right. So, I mean, he knew. Yeah. Again, not a random shooting yeah. at all. Man. But just to find, to know that they were there practicing mm-hmm. at, and would be there practicing at that field at that time. A lot we don't know. But that's the uh, that's the sad breaking news here from the nation's capital, and we will keep you up to date on that. So as a senior justice reporter, if we can back to the other big news of the day, Ryan, uh, were you in the court re- in the hearing room yesterday? I wasn't yesterday. Uh, yeah. I was there last week for the hearing. but For James Comey. Correct, yeah. But this week I just decided to you know, operate from the office. A little bit easier there. Right. You uh, certainly, once in the hearing room, the other uh, watching on television, as I did uh, both times. Um, how do you contrast uh, the... Uh, just the public appearance, the optics, if you will, of James Comey versus uh, Jeff Sessions uh, on the witness stand. Yeah, I mean, it was different. Well, first of all, there I don't think there are any bars in D.C. that were running specials for, uh, <laughs> for Sessions testimony. So, Just a shot of Southern comfort. That's it. <laughs> yeah. Might have yeah. been a little bit yeah. insulted by that. Um, but, I mean, we had two different stories under sworn testimony, which I think was is really fascinating. I mean, they didn't diverge in that much, but it was essentially – Essentially, Comey was laying out a situation where he said Sessions should have known what was going on. And when he was left, when the former FBI director was left in the Oval Office with Trump, and he said that uh, essentially Sessions sort of lingered around and knew maybe he shouldn't leave him there before he left. And that's just not basically what Sessions said, or he didn't admit that much, I suppose. Um, He said, yeah, there's nothing wrong with leaving the (laughs) the director of the FBI in the room alone with the president of the United States, even though I'm said it was not not a major problem. Not a major problem, right. And he said nothing in and of itself, I suppose, is is problematic about that. Um, And he sort of of put the onus on uh, the former FBI director to shut down any inappropriate conversation. That was that was essentially he didn't. It, it seemed to me like he didn't want to have that difficult conversation with Trump, to say, "Hey, listen, boss, you shouldn't be talking about this stuff. You're putting him in an awkward situation." That's sort of the the situation that I think, or the conversation that Comey wanted um, Trump and Sessions to have. Right. Make sure that because I mean, it's this is a this is a rule from DOJ, and it's there. I mean, there's a legitimate argument that Trump may not know about that specific rule. It's probably more difficult. I mean. It, I think you have you have to be a little thick and not realize this is an inappropriate conversation. Um, but in terms of just like you know slap on the back, hey, you know this is a good guy, blah blah blah. That he might not, you know, that might be a New York thing or whatever the defense they're coming up with these days is. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there were there were a few points that I found that were just not believable. Mm-hmm. Um, one, the 
and we talked in the last half hour with Jason Dick about this event at the Mayflower, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, look, I've been in politics a long time. I was Democratic chair of California. I organized 100, if I organized one, of events like this thing at the Mayflower, where there's a big speech. I mean, I did these for the president of the United States, for mm-hmm. Bill Clinton. Mm-hmm. But you have a little group, a very select group of VIPs ahead of time who have a little reception, and the president comes in. In this case, it was candidate Trump. And they're like, Def Sessions said there were like two dozen people there. Mm-hmm. And he wants us to believe that he he was there with mm-hmm. his aide. That in the two dozen people that he doesn't remember whether the Russian ambassador was, was one of them. I mean, Kislyak is not a tiny little guy mm-hmm. whom you don't notice, right? right? Yeah. He's a presence. So I, I he's a presence. Mm-hmm. He fills a room. Mm-hmm. I, I, so I don't believe that. Another thing I don't believe is he was saying, trying to make a case that Yes, I recused myself from the Russian investigation. But at the same time, I fired James Comey, was involved in in firing James Comey, and then hiring another director of the FBI. And he said, there's no contradiction between those two. I I think there is, right? How can you say there's not? If you say, I've got nothing to do with the... Russian investigation, and then you fire the guy who's the head of the Russian investigation. Mm-hmm. Well, I think what you would – if you're saying that the firing had nothing to do with the Russian investigation, that's a legitimate line of argument. The problem is, is that the president has himself undermined that entire argument, right? Totally. So, I mean, the FBI director does a lot. This is just one investigation among thousands that yeah. the FBI has going on at any one time. It's – you know, percentage-wise, it was probably a very small percentage of his daily – you know – day was actually taken up by this one particular investigation. It's a big job. Um, but the problem there, right, of course, is that Trump said that that's what he was thinking of and that's what this was all about. And, you know, Sessions sort of tried to ignore that in his testimony and tried to ignore that that reality that the president has admitted this is what he was thinking about and sort of worked under the theory, I suppose, that this was something that they discussed. And that may be. That may be true. I mean, they may have had that conversation before. He would not even admit that he had a conversation Yeah, the conversa- with the president yeah. of the United States before he wrote that phony memo. Right. Or Rosenstein wrote the memo and he said he agreed with it. Right. And it's an interesting position they're taking, right? Because I think the story we sort of wrote yesterday is that there's a real hesitance on the part of Sessions or I think the Trump administration to use the term executive privilege. And a lot of that goes back to the fact that Donald Trump during the sort of Fast and Furious scandal and the Obama era um, didn't like the fact that they had taken executive privilege and sort of thought that that made them look guilty, right? He's done the same sort of thing in the Clinton investigation and said when someone took the Fifth Amendment, they're guilty, right? Yeah, Only the mob right. takes the Fifth Amendment. This is the line of um, argument that he had made, candidate Trump had made, and private citizen Trump way back in 2012. Um, so it's difficult for them then to come out and say we're asserting executive privilege without the narrative sort of being taken out itself. I think in one of the tweets I remember he – Trump sort of referenced it as like, you know – said executive privilege and how can they not how can they shield off Nixon comparisons well if you're claiming executive privilege on these conversations it's going to be sort of the same thing for the Trump administration those Nixon comparisons are suddenly going to become pretty pretty relevant and pretty uh, what I th- fair what I thought was telling yesterday is um, for his refusal to answer questions which he did over and over again and, and, and Ron Wyden famously said you know you're stonewalling Martin Heinrich from uh, New Mexico says you New Mexico, right? I think Nevada? so. Nevada? Is it Nevada no. or New Mexico? Heinrich? 
Yeah. New Mexico. Yeah, New Mexico. That's right. That's right. That, and he said, you know, you are uh, basically obstructing, not just as obstructing the work of this committee. Here's Martin Heinrich. You are obstructing that congressional delegation uh, investigation by not answering these questions. And I think your silence, like the silence of Director Coates, like the silence of Admiral Rogers, speaks volumes. And then after the hearing, uh, appearing on CNN, uh, Adam Schiff, ranking Democrat in the House Intelligence Committee, says, uh, you know, they're going to want to hear from Sessions. And uh, if he tries that same tactic of, of stonewalling, which I really think it was, um, they're not going to take it. Here's Adam Schiff. You're either going to have to fish or cut bait. You're going to have to claim executive privilege or you're going to have to testify. Uh, and we have the means to compel that. And uh, if it's not done willingly, I think we should compel that. That could be that could be interesting, right? It could be, yeah. I mean, but they're, they're going to. I mean, the it's a little bit of shaky get, ground that I think Sessions is on, right? Because he, he's essentially yeah. asserting a privilege or saying, "Oh, maybe down the line we're going to assert that privilege," but not. And the problem with that, and he is, also said, only the president right. can assert that privilege. Correct. He can't, and the right. president hasn't. Right. So he says, "I'm not going to talk because I want to protect the president, and that someday he might decide." Right. And the problem there is, is that there's been a lot of this is it's been pretty clear that this question, line of questioning was going to come up. Um, that's not that wasn't ever really in doubt. Um, and so there's been a lot of time for the president to be presented with the arguments for executive privilege and be able to make an educated decision, because that's what Sessions was insisting on, that he need that the president needs to have all this information and he needs to make an informed decision about executive privilege before anything moves forward. There's been a lot of time to do that. Um, so that's sort of the problem with their argument. It's not as though this is something that popped up last minute and there was not clarity on. This is something that's been clear for a while. Okay, but is there – you're the senior justice reporter for HuffPost. <laughs> is there a written policy in the Justice Department that says an attorney general does not have to answer a question from a member of Congress? So the written policy was from the 80s. It's actually uh, written by Ted Olson. Um, the guy who you may remember from the same sex marriage case, former solicitor general. He was head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the time. And there was a separate memo from the president at the time, Reagan. Um, And it was sort of dealing more with documents, but it has a sort of a similar argument that essentially if there's a congressional investigation and documents are requested and there's a significant um, question of whether executive privilege could uh, apply, it's essentially wait on it. Let's get an answer from the White House. In the meantime, don't send over anything. Um, so, yeah, there is arguably that policy. But, again, the problem there it's is It's kind that of a stretch taking that to what he did yesterday, isn't it? It is. But also the problem is that there's been time for them to look at this. There's been time for the president to make an educated decision about this. It's not as though this is something that popped up at the last minute. Right. This has been clearly headed in this direction for over a month. I mean, for longer. Um, we know that there are these conversations that took place that were probably le- – that people say were inappropriate. So are those conversations covered? That's a question that you could have answered probably a month ago. Right. The president could have made a decision on. I think the problem is, is that um, the president doesn't want to do that because that's going to mean it's on him. Because, I mean, the president has to make the decision, right? So it's not something that he can blame on his underlings. He's going to be the one who asserts that executive privilege if it happens. And he wants to avoid that in all likelihood. All right. So speaking of presidential decisions, how likely is it that Donald Trump will fire Robert Mueller. <laughs> so he can't really do it directly. He ha- would have to change regulations and there would have to be a whole comment period. 
It would so, take okay. a very long time. So he would have to ask the deputy AG to right. fire Mueller. Correct. And the deputy AG or has made order him clear. to fire Mueller, right? Or could Correct. He? Okay. He, he could, but in all likelihood, I mean, that's a guy who that's a career guy. He's you know well respected. Despite Is this Rosenstein? Rosenstein, yeah, Rosenstein, Feinstein. What? Feinstein, no. Rosen's <laughs> That's how you remember Diane it. However, Feinstein, Feinstein so called him Fine of uh, Rosenstein. So Stein. I take that. Yes. yes. That's the right way. He, that's actually his the way he told us to remember it was Oh, is that? Fine, yeah, Feinstein. Yeah. So, um yes, yeah, so he's um he's in a place where he is probably not going to do that. Um, so that's sort of what we're going to be left. But Trump is crazy enough to and he's getting a lot of advice right now. Like Paul Ryan and and others, right? Mm-hmm. Yesterday came out and said, "No, let Mueller do his job." Right. Uh, so a lot of Republicans are sort of lining up behind him. But but Trump is crazy enough to, if he if he wanted to, to fire him or try to. Right, and you know, I mean, do it through the way you say, not, maybe not directly, but the New York Times had a fascinating story that came out last night that was essentially laying out Trump's perhaps plan here, which seems like a really terrible plan, which is essentially. That he likes the ambiguity he has about um, Mueller's job, right? So he like doesn't he doesn't want to make clear that he likes him or doesn't like him. He wants to leave that sort of up in the air. And the idea is that <laughs> then he thinks that this well-respected former FBI director is going to feel pressure to clear him, which is sort of a terrible strategy because first of all, I mean, this is a guy who, I mean. I don't think he's really worried about his next career move, right? This is a Robert <laughs> Mueller, correct? Yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> he's this this. And also, he like I think he knows it's a temporary job, this special counsel position. Yeah. The question is, does Donald Trump realize that? Like, future job security isn't really going to come into play here because it's like I mean, also being fired as special counsel or being is probably also just great for you, right? That's like. A special counsel's dream, I suppose, in terms of, you know, uh, I mean, that would the optics of that would look terrible for the president would look great for the person who got fired. So I don't think that that really matters. He doesn't he doesn't care if he gets I mean, he cares, but he doesn't. Yeah. That's not what his interest is. He's I mean, he's at the tail end of his career here. And he, this is what his legacy is going to be about. It's not about what his next job move is going to be. He's I think he'll be fine. He's the former well-respected FBI director and he'll, he's going to land on his feet. Yeah. Um, and um, this, you, you, what you said about um, that this is not maybe a forever job, but mm-hmm. it's also a job that's not going to go. I guess one thing we've learned from this point I'm trying to make is that this investigation is going to be around for a while, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I it's going to be around for if, a while. If the White House thinks this is, they're going to put behind, this behind them in the next couple of months. No. And, no. I mean, good luck finding someone to fill that position of deputy attorney general if, you know. If. If he if if that's what it comes down to, and he's forced to make that decision, I think he'll, I think all likelihood he's going to quit. Rosenstein would yeah. quit rather than fire James Mueller. It would yeah. be the Elliot Richardson all over again, right? Rather than firing Archibald Cox, right? So, um, the if if that's if that's the case, uh, the other sign we've seen that this is going to last a long time is that Mueller has been uh, busy staffing up, hiring up. So Newt Gingrich now is out there attacking Mueller because he, all he's doing is hiring Democrats. Tell us about the people that he's brought on. He's gotten some well-respected people in there. I mean, people who have um, – there's one you know who has a specialty on um, sort of interference. So that would be a big – come into play, obviously, in this case, So which means basically that the president of the United States, Trump, is sort of under the uh, – under possible scrutiny for – 
by firing the former FBI director and taking a bunch of other moves, essentially trying to interfere uh, in this investigation. So that's going to be a key legal definition. Yeah, uh, that's an important point. I don't want to skip over. I mean, the, the, the one of the big things that Donald Trump made points about James Comey was that three times James Comey told him he was not he, the mm-hmm. president, was not under investigation at that time. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it was always. At Comey, in Comey's mind, at least, it was mm-hmm. certainly only at that time he right. was asserting him. But the fact is, right now, isn't it, that the president of the United States is under investigation by Robert Mueller for possible obstruction of justice? They're not going to come out and say that, but yes. I mean, right. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> clearly. I mean, that at, right up until the point where he fired James Comey, he was not under investigation. He was not a potential right. target. But by taking that move and making that move and by those conversations that Comey laid out in these very detailed memos, it was. that right. was a, At that point, Comey didn't sort of lay that out to the investigative team or tell them, inform them about that because he didn't want them, you know, sort of being shaken or have that have, that, have an income on but, their investigation. But Comey made it pretty clear last week that he knew that this that, – that releasing his memos could trigger a special counsel investigation – into Donald Trump obstructing justice. Right. Uh, and that's that, that's where they are and might even result in, um, which he says he'd be 100 percent willing to do, Donald Trump testifying under oath mm-hmm. Yeah, in front of the special counsel. That'd be pretty compelling stuff. <laughs> yeah. The last one who did that was Bill Clinton, I think, in, yeah. the, ma- in the map room. That didn't the, go too great. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. Somebody explain to me why the White House thinks this is good for Donald Trump to volunteer to do that. I don't think the White House lawyers think it's good for Donald Trump. Donald Trump thinks it's maybe good for his <laughs> public image. I mean, the White House lawyers also don't think, and his private counsel also don't think it's a good idea for him to be tweeting all the time. And yeah. perhaps they had a little bit of influence in the fact that he didn't live tweet Comey's testimony last week and didn't sort of you know go on too much of – I mean, he still said things that he probably shouldn't have, but didn't go on too much of a rampage on Twitter – Last week, what remarkable restraint! Yeah, <laughs> I know. Uh, and also, of course, um, the idea that Donald Trump would lie under oath is just out of the question, right? <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder how many times he has already lied under oath, and how many different uh, how many different lawsuits. Hey, Ryan, thank you so much for coming in, keeping on top of this for us. Sure. Uh, and this is not the end of it. More hearings coming up. We'll wrap it up today with just uh, bringing you up to date again. Uh, the latest is that. Uh, uh, Congressman Scalise is recovering from a hip wound uh, suffered today uh, from gunmen opening fire on the field of Republican members of Congress who are practicing for the congressional baseball game tomorrow night. Also, a couple of uh, um, Capitol Police officers were shot. The uh, gunman is in custody. Uh, very serious situation there in Alexandria, Virginia. Enjoy Flag Day, folks. Come back and see us again tomorrow. We'll be looking for you. This is The Bill Press Show.